Hello and welcome to Under the Skin from Luminary. This week I spoke with Nicholas Glinos, Vice President of the Student Association for Psychedelic Studies and co-founder of Psychedelic Neuroscience and Therapy for the University of Michigan. His work is focused on DMT. And if you've listened to that intro, you can hear he ain't even got a job yet because he's a student, isn't he? We're basically talking to children nowadays on Under the Skin. But this is a child with a real skill set, I'd go so far as to say, because he's experimenting in the world of DMT, which fascinates me in particular because if you believe, as I do, that we need a new dimension to the way that we organise our systems, from where do we derive this dimension other than our own consciousness? I don't think we're going to be... Uh, I don't think we're able to settle for reorganising the deck chairs on the Titanic of of contemporary culture I think we have to look at building in an entirely different vessel that's why in addition to talking to people that are academic experts in fields of politics and philosophy I think it's important that we start to examine consciousness itself but that's just what I recommend listen to shout outs Here's some listener shout-outs, and you're a listener. This is your shout-out. Marky Allen says, I love your podcast. I love the diversity of topics and the many different perspectives we get to hear. It really gets the hamster wheel in my head turning. I love it. My favourite so far has to be your conversation with Dr. Edith Eager. She is truly an amazing lady. Yeah, I remember her. She's like a Holocaust survivor. She's a brilliant therapist. It was super moving to talk to someone so advanced in years, so young in spirit, who has experienced personally such extreme historical tragedies and has emerged from it in grace. Hey, listen, if you're not a member of our mailing list community yet, become one right now. Go to russellbrand.com, subscribe to it, because then you'll get to hear about these live Zoom calls we do where you can meet us directly. I don't know about meet me directly. That's not necessarily the right way to say it, but you'll be on a Zoom call with me while we have guests on there and while we talk about these issues. You'll love it. So go to russellbrand.com right now and sign up for the mailing list. This is from Debs. I'm just trying to thank you for your wonderful podcast. I love listening every week and I'm grateful for the opportunity to get to hear the thoughts, theories, research and opinions of people who I otherwise probably would never have heard of. Thank you, Russell and team. Well, you won't have heard of this week's guest because he's not left school yet. But my, I, I, I selected him as a guest because he was um, on his TED talk was fantastic. And I'm glad that we did. It's a brilliant conversation. And I'm just being I'm being um, well, I'm being facetious. Cindy Zerlian says, I just signed up to your mailing list. Good. I'm in the US and I love your podcast. I've always thought you were talented. Thank you. And funny. Why you? But I'm blown away by your intelligence. This is the best letter I've ever had. Your message is so important. Please keep doing what you do and keep throwing in the American accent because it makes me laugh. Thank you, Cindy, for saying those things. Remember to uh, keep watching our YouTube videos where we cover a wide variety of topics. Subscribe to us there as well because we're always doing interesting stuff. My last show is coming up at the Brixton Academy. It's been sold out for a while, but you might be able to get returns. It's on the 30th of May. If you're not a member of my mailing list, you should get right on there. And remember, on YouTube, as well as the cultural critique and political videos I do, we do um, well-being and personal development stuff on the Awakening channel. So subscribe to that. For example, we did one recently with this bloke called Paul, who uh, in a show I did at Bristol at a football stadium, no less, just for the purposes of clarity, we didn't fill the football stadium. Neither did we intend to. We played one bank of the football stadium. It was about 4,000 people. It was pretty good. Uh, a pretty good event. I took my dog. I took my children. It was it was chaotic. Um, anyway, Paul at this event asked me um, about what was it? He asked me about a, a relapsing and how to handle relapse. And it was a, an interesting little conversation that he and I had because 
I believe that the 12 steps is a way of changing individual consciousness. If you change individual consciousness, by Jove, you'll change the world. So uh, go and have a look at that if you've not seen it before. As you're already a Luminary subscriber, you should be listening to Above the Noise. Each week I do a different meditation. This week it was dealing with emotions and ambitions. Lovely little meditation by me that was. But now it's time to talk psychedelics with Nicholas Glinos, that plucky wee scamp from Michigan University on Under the Skin. Trying to achieve equality with the annihilation of category is not no, a successful that, route. Yes, that, that, that's exactly right. We're in this era where it turns out we were never the boss. It doesn't look like an ideology. What's beneath the surface of people we admire, of the ideas that define our time, the history we are told? And welcome to Russell Brand Under the Skin. Nicholas, thanks for joining me on Under the Skin, mate. I really appreciate you coming on. Hey, thank you, Russell. It's a, it's a privilege to be on here. Thank you. That's really nice of you to say. I've wanted to talk to you for a little while. I saw your TED Talks. I'm interested in psychedelics. I used to take psychedelics when I was younger, like everybody. Could you just tell, for our audience, could you just tell us a little bit about the nature of your research and, and your position? Yeah, my name's Nick Glinos. I'm a, a PhD candidate at University of Michigan in the Department of Molecular and Integrative Physiology. And the work that I'm focused on is studying DMT uh, in, a, in a nutshell. And uh, it's kind of two different aspects of it. So we're studying the uh, endogenous role of DMT. So we're trying to understand uh, the function and the biological role and the biosynthetic pathways of DMT in the body. And then we're also studying uh, exogenous DMT. And we're looking at the neurophysiological and neurochemical correlates uh, in the brain uh, after DMT administration. So we're asking, what happens in the brain when you administer DMT? Those two words, endogenous and exogenous, uh, just means made inside of the body and exogenous imbibed. Is that right? Exactly, yeah. So, So endogenous means that it's a naturally produced compound. It's a naturally occurring compound in the body. And then exogenous means that uh, the compound is being administered, uh, you know, via IV or smoked or, or, or any other fashion. Speculatively, what do you think the endogenous aspect of DMT implies, given that most of us, if we've heard of it at all, are aware that DMT, popularly known as the spirit molecule, induces psychedelic states that are remarkably consistent and for me at least, have echoes of a lot of mystical writing and seem to create sort of archetypal experiences. What does that mean that it's in our bodies? Well, is it no more remarkable than carbon is in our bodies and it's in wood? Is it no more remarkable than that, really? Yeah, you know, you know, it could be either one of those things. And I think that's one of the most interesting things about DMT. You know, we're amidst this psychedelic renaissance now when uh, a number of different psychedelics are being investigated for uh, many different things. Uh, you know, for, for treatment of mental health and different things like that, and for the study of consciousness as well. But DMT, I think, is is very unique in the sense that uh, it's the only one of these psychedelics that's naturally occurring in the body. And not only is it just naturally occurring in our bodies, it seems to be almost ubiquitous throughout nature. So it's found in hundreds, if not thousands of species of plants. Uh, it's been used for uh, a thousand years or more by indigenous groups across South America in the form of ayahuasca. So it's this, it's this very widespread, commonly occurring molecule. And the truth is we have absolutely no idea what its function is. We don't know what its function is in plants and we don't know what its function is in humans or any other mammals. And it could be, uh, its function could, could lie anywhere on that spectrum that you just brought up. 
you know, DMT could be responsible for the hallucinogenic experience that we have when we dream every night. It could be responsible mm. for these uh, creative or uh, flow states that we have during meditation or prayer or any other type of spiritual experience. It, it could be responsible for the uh, experiences that people have during near-death experiences. Um, or it could have some other sort of non-consciousness related function. Uh, some, some research looking at uh, um, like some in vitro type of research has shown that DMT has got very potent um, anti-inflammatory properties and it's um, hypoxia protective. So it, it protects cells when they're uh, you know, depleted of oxygen and it's got uh, immune related, related functions. It, uh, it uh, helps in the immune system. So the jury's still out. Uh, it's, it's very much undecided and there hasn't been uh, enough research or you know, enough attention paid to endogenous DMT to be able to make any sort of evidence-based scientific claim about the role that it might be playing in the body. Does it vary significantly between people? It's very hard to detect. Is it in such small quantities? Is that why? Exactly, yeah. So, so that's, that's one thing. It's in very small quantities, but it's also metabolized really, really quickly. Um, if I'm sure you've heard about the aspects of the, of the DMT experience. And one of the, one of the hallmarks of it is that it's very, very short. So if you administer DMT to somebody 15 to 20 minutes later, the experience is completely over. And that just tells us that DMT is metabolized in the body very, very quickly. Um, and that's the case for endogenous DMT as well. It's metabolized quickly and it's, uh, it's difficult to capture using our uh, scientific techniques to, to be able to measure it. Is there any uh, evidence that it's connected to the pituitary gland or pineal gland, or are they the same thing? And we tell what both of those are, because now I realize that when I'm asking this question, I'm confused by my own question. Are the pituitary gland and pineal gland the same thing, and are they connected to DMT? Uh, those are actually actually not the same thing, um, but the pineal gland has had a lot of uh, relevance and connection to DMT, and that was Dr. Rick Strassman back in the early 1990s who came up with the hypothesis of DMT as the spirit molecule. And uh, he was looking at the pineal gland as a potential source of that endogenous DMT. And we know that the pineal gland has a high concentration of the enzyme that is supposedly necessary for DMT production. So the pineal gland has the intrinsic machinery to be able to make uh, endogenous DMT. Uh, but some of our research in the past has shown that if you remove the pineal gland from experimental rats, we still see the presence of endogenous DMT. So that, that indicates that the pineal gland might be contributing to DMT production, but it's not necessary for DMT production. What is the pituitary gland? The pituitary, pituitary gland is, uh, I haven't heard of any connection to endogenous DMT with the pituitary gland, but it's uh, you know part of the uh, endocrine system and uh, doesn't have a, a related function that, that I know of to DMT. So you don't have to answer that question because I'm just, I might as well ask you, who's your favorite footballer or where do shoes get made? It's just the question I'm asking you that's not in your field. Hey, mate, why did you get into studying DMT? I understand your background is in sort of um, plant science, so you're like interested in what botany, ethnobotany and stuff. How did you get into this, uh, into DMT? Yeah, that's, that's kind of where it came from. Uh, I took sort of a non-traditional path, but uh, went back to school a little bit later. I was in my mid-20s when I went back to school and uh, was real interested in studying the natural world and, and studying the outdoors and got involved in botany and then kind of came across this uh, field of ethnobotany. You know, I heard about the work of uh, Richard Evans Schultes, who was this uh, famous uh, ethnobotanist. They call him the father of ethnobotany. He spent over a decade 
uh, in the Amazon studying uh, Amazonian plants and uh, South American plants and, and uh, cultures that were, that were using uh, var various plants. Uh, you know, I learned about ayahuasca through a lot of that research. And it's, uh, ayahuasca is called one of the greatest mysteries of ethnobotany. Um, and, you know, we could talk about that a little bit later, but um, learning about that and learning about the fact that DMT is the active compound in ayahuasca. And then also that DMT, like I said before, is, you know, almost ubiquitous across nature and present in the human body, just really sparked this interest in, you know, what, what is this compound doing floating around in our body? And what mm. is this compound doing all over the world? It, there has to be some biological relevance. Even though you've mentioned some of the other potential or, or, or uh, observed functions to do with immunity and cell and the protection and repair of cells, it, given the impact of DMT on the human psyche, it's likely, do you suppose, that it's connected to consciousness? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's the most likely approach and that's uh, the most appealing approach in my mind. But there's not really evidence to support that because, um, you know, when you administer DMT to, to a human or if, if somebody, you know, consumes DMT, they're taking it in, 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 a, in a very high dose, you know, uh, 20 to 30 to you know, 50 milligrams of DMT is, is, a, is a very high dose. And, and, and if you compare, if you sort of calculate that dose to the present of the presence of DMT in the body, our body doesn't make nearly that much. So, so it's very, uh, implausible to think that our body could produce enough DMT to, uh, to result in uh, a very high dose DMT experience. But there's still more work that needs to be done. There's possible ways of, of storing and concentrating DMT in, in the body that we may not be aware of. I think there's, there, there's, there's, there's no reason to rule that out yet. Yeah. And also that the, the impact of high dosage, I suppose, pertains particularly to those more baroque uh, experiences you know like the, the high dosage experience is a particular thing i wonder if the presence of dmt indicates a relationship between what you might call mundial ordinary consciousness and given its presence in many biological forms or did you say most or did you even say all I think all the time, mate, about how consciousness emerged from biochemical processes. It can obviously, and like everyone else, I don't understand how it could have happened or how it could have happened. And and and, and I know that the rational materialistic understanding is that increasingly complex neurological networks somehow have consciousness as a byproduct. I've never found that satisfactory, and I've always found that to be a deliberately obtuse and uh, and material and me mechanistic response to what appears to be a great mystery. If uh, a large amount of DMT produces extraordinary conscious experiences, is it possible that a low amount of DMT creates the ordinary conscious experience and the ubiquity of DMT could suggest a relationship between this material indicator of panpsychism, that consciousness precedes matter, that all matter is an expression of a deep conscious force? And that, so that when you have DMT in high dosages, you sort of attain a different aspect of an ever-present but more obscure conscious experience. I know I'm just making all that up and you're an actual scientist, but you're on the podcast now, Nick, and you're going to have to respond. <laughs> no, I like it. Yeah, it's very interesting. You know, and, but it's, it brings up one of the things that I like to be very careful about when I talk about the potential role of endogenous DMT. 
And that's the fact, that's the, the idea of DMT being this sort of silver bullet, um, you know, and a lot of people will say like, oh, DMT, that's the compound responsible for near-death experience, or that's the compound responsible for the dream state we experience. And, you know, and like you said, in, in lower doses, perhaps it could, it could play a role in our, our uh, conscious experience and our ability to experience consciousness. And the fact that it's ubiquitous might mean that it could uh, have some kind of some sort of a role in, in panpsychism. But to take something as broad and complex and uh, intricate as consciousness and, and narrow that down mm. to a single molecule um, is mm. it seems it seems a little bit uh, sort of reductionist. Reductive. So so yeah, so so I would say that yeah I mean sure DMT probably has some role in the body contributing to some sort of conscious or sensory perception or sensory experience. But to say that that it's the molecule that's contributing to or allowing for consciousness, uh, I think it's a little bit a little bit of a stretch in, in some ways. Yes, I suppose it is a stretch because, stretch because of the complexity of it. Although it's interesting that sort of that there is a kind of um sacramental component to dmt particularly and hallucinogens broadly and, and what is the function of religion ritual and spirituality if it's not an attempt to guide and relate to and mold beingness itself the reason i'm interested in talking to you mate loads of reasons but if i was to try and nail it down it's because I think we're in this kind of space of cultural nihilism that material rationalism has come to an end and we're seeing the impact of that in modern democracy. We're seeing belief systems in particular fall apart. A any issue you can name, I can, I can trace it back to this idea that we've lost a sort of a centralised idea of faith, the kind of faith that, sort of, that you would see um, in its raw, a raw kind of form, in totemism where we're very connected to our environment and to the systems of our survival. And then perhaps you would see more tangential and diluted versions in subsequent belief and social systems right through to monotheism and Christianity and the, and the, you know, the desert religions. Now, though, that we live these kind of individualized, secularized lives where we sort of believe primarily only in the self, which is in one way, I suppose, extraordinary because it's like we believe only in our own subjectivity and our own pleasure and you know, as molded by um, systems of conformity. I wonder if there could be, you know, as you said, there's this new psychedelic revolution. I wonder if there could be a role for creating a new experience of faith, you know, because... I don't know, man, where you are. I don't know if you're one of them scientists that can't say, when I took DMT, this happened because it would mess with your funding or whatever. Uh, like, but like, you know, it seems to me that people, when they... I can't take drugs at the moment because I'm a drug addict in recovery for 19 years, and I know these are not addictive substances, but nonetheless, it would sort of mess with my vibe, I guess. So I, what I'm interested in is the kind of encounters people tend to have are profound and effective, and I think help people to reform their perspective on their own lives and life more broadly. So do you think that there is a role for DMT in transforming culture and transforming society, particularly when you look at things like, you know, excess of addiction, mental illness, despair, inequality? You know, I wonder what your thoughts are on that. I know that's sort of straying somewhat from your field of scientific expertise and perhaps more to your original passion for the subject. Right. No. Yeah. That's it's a it's a really great question, and uh, I think certainly not only DMT but a number of other psychedelics are are currently being investigated for that specific topic, trying to alleviate sort uh, different forms of, of mental illness with uh, with psilocybin or ketamine or LSD or or other psychedelics. 
and also allowing people to have these sort of uh, profound experiences that that truly shake up their worldview, that shake up their their internal uh, perceptions, and and those kinds of things can can be extremely beneficial and therapeutic and and positive for people, but you know they can also be be very dangerous. So I think there there has to be a certain degree of uh, skepticism, and you have to sort of tread carefully as as we move forward with uh, attributing power and you know ability of these psychedelics to to really transform culture and and uh, you know human psychology, but nonetheless they're extremely powerful compounds and people come out of it come out of the experience with 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 new insights with new ideas about how how they know their self and there, there's just there's a, there's a huge amount of potential that that can't be disregarded uh with, with these compounds and and dmt in particular it seems to be seems to be one that that really rapidly powerfully transforms reality into something that is completely outside of any type of ordinary perception. Talk to me about that, will ya? What do you mean? Like, given that this is your area of research, can you tell me, I know that you're only dealing with reported experience from subjects, presumably, but can you tell me what people say happens to them on DMT? Right. So I'm actually not involved in any, any human, I'm not administering DMT to any humans, um, but but obviously, you know, I do have a, a bit of an understanding and have done some reading and heard her reports of DMT experiences. And, you know, it seems to be, like I said, uh, extremely rapid. So the, the experience comes on sort of like a rush or like a freight train, um, usually before they've finished pushing the drug into the vein, the experience is already um, reaching its, reaching its peak effects. Um, and there seems to be this sort of, uh, sort of breakthrough, uh, if the dose is high enough, a breakthrough into some sort of a, a realm, um, or a, a place that's uh, like more real than real. And a lot of people report a sort of a, a familiarity as they, as they encounter this place. It seems like, oh, yes, I've, I've, I've been here before. I've experienced this. This seems like a place that's, that's familiar. And, you know, some people report interactions with uh, some entities or uh, ancestors or people that have passed away. And this is all coupled with, you know, very intense, colorful, vivid hallucinations with with closed eyes, and it's uh, it's it's sort of uh, it's sort of related to um, a, a dissociative or or an anesthetic in some way to where you know you're you're not in your body anymore. You're completely separate from your physical body, and you're in some sort of otherworldly realm. And then within 10 to 15 minutes, you return back to reality and re-enter your body. You're left with this feeling of you know, potentially it's like I just died and was reborn kind of thing. Like it's that powerful. Is it true that that when you observe the brain of someone who's had DMT administered, there is not more neurological activity, but less? Depending on which areas you look in. So a lot of the research has shown uh, these regions called the, the default mode network, which has been uh, attributed to thoughts of uh, like mind wandering, mental time travel, planning, preparation, things like that, that brain network seems to be subdued and activity seems to be reduced. There's a dozen, there's more than a dozen, there's several ways to measure the brain, to image the brain under under psychedelics. Um, and some of the things we're doing is looking at EEG activity. So that's more um, uh, kind of global cortical activity. And we see a lot of different, different patterns emerging there. Um, you know, other ways are to look at 
like neuroplasticity, um, you know, neurochemistry, what, are, what kind of neurotransmitters, what kind of molecules are, are responsible or are released after DMT. Uh, but certainly the, the default mode network seems to be one of the, one of the common features of not only DMT, but a number of other serotonergic psychedelic substances. You know, I was just thinking of the, my own subjective experience that my, my continually narrativizing, projecting, remembering the difficulty of remaining absolutely present in the moment. Just yesterday, I was on, in a coastal hotel in a place called Blackpool in England. And, uh, is, and do you know there's um, an air of uh, subdued sanctity there as if like a place of kitsch and vulgarity has been built on top of something beautiful and natural, but becomes most evident and obvious when you look at the sea, which is separated from uh, the human settlement by three rather aggressive roads and and sort of promenades. But when you get actually to the beach and to the water, and if you stare at the water with the light on it, as I did yesterday, there was a moment, just a moment, where my narrativizing mind temporarily ceased and there's a sense of awe and wonder and something a little like the G-force of being on a roller coaster, which I also did while in Blackpool. And and I, I, and I feel like that there is, uh, uh, like you said, that the one component of the reported DMT experience is this familiarity. I sense that the sacred, the rapture, enlightenment, awakening, these are not, they're esoteric in the sense of they're seldom achieved and that they are high, that they are empyrean but they are ordinary and accessible to all people. And I think somehow we are stimulated away from those states by uh, social structures that continually agitate fear and desire, distractions, you know. And so the idea that that part of the mind that you said is likely responsible for sort of, I don't know, planning and daydreaming and might just wandering, that that is temporarily annulled and that the consequence of that is this kind of dormant wonder roars to the full forefront. That, um, that, that, that sort of excites me. That excites me. Yeah. And a lot of, uh, a lot of research, you know, uh, Dr. Carhart Harris, I know who you've had on the, on the podcast yes. before too. He's, he's done, uh, a lot of work in that field and it's, it's been speculated and I'm, I'm not sure if this is really verified. It, it's certainly not verified, but the idea that the default mode network that what I was just talking about is, is somewhat related to the, the occurrence of the ego. Um, mm-hmm. and, and, and just as you said, if you can sort of shut down that ego and people talk about psychedelics as ego dissolving substances, and if you can sort of shut down that constant monkey brain, you know, that, that mind wandering, that, that mental time travel, if you can shut that down, then, you know, seeing what emerges there is uh, potentially something that that's always there. We're just, we're just not noticing it because, you know, we have this sort of uh, a reducing valve in our, in our brain. That's, you know, only letting in a certain flow of information um, when, when in reality there's, there's uh, other other things, other forms of consciousness to experience. I feel that that's true. So you talked about um, ayahuasca and you, sort of, you mentioned it's some sort of a, I can't remember what exactly what you said, but you said it's like a miracle or it don't make sense or something. Can you just go back to that, mate? Yeah, it's, uh, it's one, of the, one of the greatest mysteries of ethnobotany is I think what I said, and that's uh, attributed to uh, Richard Evan Schultes, who was the, the father of ethnobotany and 
uh, Wade Davis, who was one of his uh, trainees and students also uh, did some work with ayahuasca and, and came to that, that conclusion. And it's, it's very interesting because, uh, so the thing about DMT is it's not orally active. So if you have a plant that contains DMT and you eat the plant, then you're not going to trip on DMT. If you, if you consume a capsule of, you know, purified DMT, you're not going to trip on DMT. Uh, you know, like I said, it's very rapidly metabolized. So the enzymes in our body, as DMT passes through first pass metabolism, the liver, everything else uh, deactivates that DMT. So it's, it's not going to allow you to have a, a psychedelic experience. But what you can do is you can combine the DMT with an inhibitor of the enzymes that normally break it down. And that's called a monoamine oxidase inhibitor. So if you take DMT with one of those inhibitors, then DMT becomes orally active. So you can consume it and actually have the psychedelic experience. So it's sort of this, uh, you're sort of hacking the endogenous chemistry of our body to allow DMT to become orally active. And ayahuasca is exactly that. So it's a combination of, of, of usually two plants, oftentimes a, a couple of other plants that are, that are added and there's, there's various recipes, but there's the two main two plants are the one, one that contains the DMT and then the other plant that contains the uh, enzyme inhibitor. So uh, when you combine those two plants and make a brew or make a tea and you consume it, then you have ayahuasca and you have this very prolonged uh, DMT experience. Uh, and it's, it's, it's active for longer in the body than DMT alone would be because you're taking it with that inhibitor to allow the DMT to uh, avoid the metabolism. And that's very interesting because uh, in South America, all across South America, not just one indigenous group figured out this, this random combination, but hundreds of them across multiple countries, all across the Amazon basin. And this is in one of the most richly diverse botanical regions of the world. There's 80,000 species of vascular plants. There's 80,000 different plants you could combine to make this happen. And they found the two that actually make it work. And oftentimes if you take one or one or two of them alone, then uh, there's, there, are, there are no effects. There's, there's sickness, there's nausea, but combining them both um, to make this brew allows for this intensely powerful and what became a culturally and historically very, very significant and important brew for a number of different indigenous groups all across uh, Northwestern South America. So it's, 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 you know, and it's a great mystery. So how do the indigenous people with no, obviously no, you know, modern chemistry or empirical testing tools figure this out? And, you know, I've traveled a bit to Central America and talked to, talked to a few people about this. And really one of the most common answers that comes is, you ask them, how did the people figure this out? And they say they, they speak to the plants. So they have some sort of uh, a communication network or some sort of uh, a way of, of learning from the plants that is unknown to us and doesn't exist in our perceptual capabilities. So it, it's very interesting. And um, I'm not sure if we'll ever have an answer, but you know, we don't need an answer. It's, it's, it's just very interesting. The foundation of mysticism is, of course, that there are ways of accessing knowledge that are not material, mechanical or rational. Every saint, sage, rishi or mystic Sufi claims that they can access wisdom not by process of external empirical experimentation, but through an inward connection to an abiding unity. 
These ideas are by their nature sort of impossible to prove because they exist outside of the bandwidth of ordinary rational discourse. But we're beginning to see, and I've alluded to it earlier, the limitations of ordinary rational discourse. It's like today we're recording, this has been that school shooting today, you know, and so, and of course this is something that will become politicised in the ordinary and typical fashion. But it's difficult not to, for me at least, not to posit that it is whatever else it is, is an indication of a sick society that's lost its way and that needs some contemplation, introspection and a radical change in direction. We kind of are willing to ignore the kind of phenomena that you just outlined, that people without, as you said, the empirical tools for experimentation or you know, with 80,000 vascular plants are able to happen upon a combination that grants a sort of extraordinary experience. And I've always noticed, in, and it's interesting, I suppose, to, for me to speak to you because you are a, a scientist, and that there's a, and I don't mean this with individual scientists that I chat to, I chat to scientists all the time that are humble and there's as much variety of personality and character as there are in you know any group, I suppose. But I've noticed, generally speaking, that where science intersects with corporatism, where science intersects with pharmaceutical, pharmacology and the financial imperatives of pharmacology rather than the sort of investigative and medical uh, application of pharmacology, there is a kind of... Um, arrogance and even you know in technology there's a presumptiveness there's a kind of a, like sometimes typified by the use of the word we and that you know by people who perhaps i sort of think well where did you get the right to use that word we just there and it's sort of it, i sometimes feel like it's a, an orthodoxy that is prohibitive that's the opposite of what's supposed to be that it's not investigative open-minded and humble but but forecloses on the possibility of different ways of living at a time when different ways of living are precisely what's required and I wonder if this is in part as what led you to investigate this. Why in particular are you investigating DMT, Nick? What do you imagine you might discover? Yeah, yeah. I think I think you make some uh, really good points there and bring up some interesting topics there. You know, one of the most interesting things about psychedelics in my mind is that they they have this potential to possibly bridge the subjective and the objective. So usually those things are, are very separate and science deals with uh, evidence-based objective conclusions and mysticism, religion deals with subjective-based understandings. But, but now we have these, these tools that can allow profound subjective truths to emerge and then we can look at them and at the same time, juxtapose them with, with a scientific objective perspective. So they, they really, that's, that's one of the reasons they're so interesting for, and so useful for the study of consciousness. When trying to understand consciousness, it's, uh, there's, you know, they're talked about uh, the hard problem of consciousness. And it's the idea that, you know, even if we knew everything there was about the mechanisms of the brain, would we be able to make that jump from mechanism to subjective experience? How can we, how can we make the jump from from cells to what it feels like to be on a podcast and see the color red. You know, how, how do we make that jump? That That's something that is, you know, probably going to, I'm not sure if we'll ever solve that that problem, you know, this hard problem of consciousness. 
but psychedelics are, are just very interesting in that they, they allow us to, to, to use objective science along with, with subjective perspectives as well. Possibly we won't be able to solve it by pursuing the lines of inquiry that we have been, but if we were to investigate the manner in which the um, numerous indigenous tribes were able to discern that of the 80,000 available plants, these two in combination would in, induce a psychic, psych, uh, psychedelic experience. Perhaps that there's something to be learned by revisiting this. I'm not like deeply Rousseauian infatuated with the idea that there is some arcane and golden age for us to reinvigorate, although I am a bit infatuated with that. But I think our job is to find the synthesis, the, uh, um, the synthesis between modern and, and obvious technological and medical advance and our kind of forgotten connection to latent truth within ourselves. And I think what you said about a potential bridge between the subjective and objective seems as, gosh, what do I want to say, as, as an efficient a way of expressing that as I've ever heard. Right, yeah, there's there's absolutely... I would say uh, a, a synergistic effect of, of using using multiple approaches to to advance knowledge and and seek truth, you know, using using an objective perspective from science and using a, a subjective ex, uh, perspective from uh, from mysticism or, or religion. And it, it kind of reminds me of the work of uh, you know I was, I was reading recently some of the work of William James, who's you know the the father of American psychology, and he started to experiment, experiment with, with nitrous oxide in the late uh, 1800s. And, and he was amazed that you could, you could inhale some uh, small amount of nitrous oxide and be transported, you know, um, almost similar to DMT into this like completely different reality, this totally <laughs> different experience. And, and, and the revelation that he had was this idea of um, pluralism or the idea of, you know, holding, holding two perspectives simultaneously in your mind and and gaining insight and gaining knowledge through through both of those perspectives so he's a you know classically trained empirical psychologist on one hand but then he has these uh, nitrous oxide ex- experiences and and realizes that these feel more true and and more real than than any of my work in in science or uh, or, or empirical or empirical understanding the, these feel equally or more or more true than those than those experiences. So and and I think one of his conclusions was that it doesn't really it doesn't really matter if your belief on the on the mysticism side is not actually true because those beliefs can sort can serve as an as an adaptive or functional role and and those can those can provide you with insight that you can sort of add to your repertoire of knowing your your repertoire of understanding. And, and you can sort of take both of those perspectives and, you know, combine them as a whole and, and, and understand and know that there's, there's more than one way of knowing, you know, not everything can be, can be measured with a ruler. So, so I think that's a, that's a very interesting uh, a way to look at it and, and go back historically to, to one of the people who really uh, ma- ma- made a big impact in, in the idea of, you know, altered states of consciousness. What's Terence McKenna, some sort of mad renegade? I listen to loads of his stuff. I love his stuff. I think he's a beautiful communicator, mystic and savant. And he uh, seems to me a pretty brilliant academic, although I understand that even from listening to Dennis McKenna talk that Terence, like, you know, he, he goes out there. He sort of is able to wander out onto the promontories of speculation. And 
What do you think of Terence McKenna? Yeah, I think I think he was he was one of the best at doing what I just described. You know, he he knew about uh, pharmacology and physiology, and he knew about you know drug action, but he also had this very beautiful way of of explaining subjective experience, and uh, he he's able to uh, really sort of sort of bring you in to that experience. And, and he's he got this storytelling ability and this, uh, he's very, he's very eloquent. So, so I, I love that about him. And honestly, yeah, he was one of the people who really inspired me and excited me about, about the psychedelic experience. Yeah. And I, I think he's, he's done a lot to, to, to inspire a lot of people in that way. He is shaman, huh? Like, like, uh, like, you know, like we have to rediscover shamanism in our secularized and materialized cultures, individuals that can connect us to the divine and create communally sacred experiences. And certainly McKenna had that great ability and was literally, you know, taking people on voyages using plant medicines. Um, his descriptions of DMT I've listened to sort of, you know, like on, on YouTube, really, like I've, when he talks about DMT in particular, he says that that's the one, like he said, like how he describes it. And obviously I know you're familiar with this, but I'm doing this for the people listening that haven't heard. Like he says that you burst through some kind of membrane into an ulterior or external reality that you're confronted with like beings that seem like self-dribbling basketballs or Fabergé eggs of pure light that vibrate new beingness into existence and invite you to participate in that with them. That you meet like Harlequin figures, elves and jesters that make these toys and artifacts, any one of which if you could return to your reality with it would change the course of culture. He says that you see sort of whole aesthetic waves like here look there's baroque there's minimalism there's sort of like late japanese i can't even like like terence's ability to describe what he's like you know all of these things just passing cultures just in the snap of a fingers just in a flash a sense of unity and oneness now you know terence mckenna seemed to convey that these experiences were if not uniform somewhat consistent to him and to other people um, you know, and of course he reported like, you know, like he used to talk sort of pretty specifically about the dosage and the duration of the experience. So what interests me and what has always interested me, and I think probably one of the reasons that I became a drug addict and the, one of the reasons that recovery has worked for me as well, is because I'm interested in what temporarily we must call mystical experiences because, yeah, we don't have the tools to directly measure or explain these types of experiences but the idea i like many people have the sense that there's something else that there is that this is we're experiencing one expression of potential realities and and we're uh, we're uh, over mortgaged on it we think that it's all that there is and we behave as if it's all that there is and we punish and judge as if it's all that there is and I feel feel like if we don't find a way of reawakening our connection to, you know, if not directly through psychedelics, I'm sure there are other ways of achieving these states. I've done some pretty interesting things with breath work, but I've not met any self-dribbling basketballs or Fabergé eggs or, you know, seen the advent of new architectural styles, you know, but like, I feel this has got to be, we've got to find, if, I don't mean on an individual basis, I don't think these things should be administered at schools. But what I feel like is that a place at the table has to be made for the 
unknowable and for the sacred for the sense of mischief that mckenna describes that you encounter beings that go what are you doing here oh we've been waiting for you we're so happy that you're here that it seems so personal and magical and beautiful and popular and inclusive and not deeply esoteric or super serious and solemn and this is the kind of god that i need to meet and i think this is the kind of god that the world needs and i suppose maybe there's a few questions off this Uh, have you taken dmt and are you able to talk about that and uh, do you think I should? I think it's, uh, yeah, man, it's it's a tough thing when asking scientists, current researchers about whether or not they've taken psychedelics. It, it kind of it kind of puts them in a tight spot, you know. I see. Fair enough. Do you think that I should take it? Um, I, I was gonna I was gonna ask you about uh, about your opinion on this, but uh, before I ask you, I'll say, um, yeah, yeah, I think you should. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, why not? You know, um, well, I, you know, I understand. You know, you you talk a lot about uh, you know addiction and recovery, and I think that that's absolutely a, a, a great thing. And you know, I've I, I think I think sobriety is 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 the answer too. Really, um, I think that's whenever I you know drink too much or smoke too many cigarettes or whatever, you know, on the weekends, and I'm like, you know, that's that's not uh, that's that's not the way to be. Um, but what I wanted to ask you about is you know this idea of of uh, sobriety. You know these psychedelics are, are extremely powerful uh, uh, catalysts. You know they they can speed up the uh, they people talk about it's you know twenty years of psychotherapy in in two hours. You know you sort of like make these huge leaps in uh, you know maybe understanding unconscious material and uncovering shadow content. You know to to use a like a Jungian perspective. Uh, is that you know is that sort of a free lunch? Are you bypassing all of this necessary work that that's actually required? To be able to to be able to really understand those 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 truths, um, you know, I was recently reading some of the work of um, uh, it's a, sort of an analysis of Jungian depth psychology with you know psychedelic experiences. And if you look back, uh, Carl Jung was actually sort of averse to psychedelics. He was you know he he would not recommend it for his for his clients, and it was definitely early on before psychedelics had had a lot of uh, a lot of interest and momentum. But if you can imagine somebody like Carl Jung, who basically devoted his life to the process of individuation and, and understanding, understanding the unconscious. And then you walk up to him and say, like, here's a pill, take this pill and all that, you know, all that work will be bypassed. You know, that's, I, I, can, I can see why, why he, why he wouldn't be interested in that. And um, I wonder if maybe if you have any, any comments on that or uh, perspective. Of course I do. When has there ever been a subject that I haven't got a perspective or a comment on? But like Bob Roth, who came on our show, he's a, a transcendental meditation teacher runs the David Lynch Foundation. He's my meditation teacher. Mine, mine, I tell you. Um, he said, like the, the Maharishi said, that psychedelics is like uh, kicking down heaven's doors. Um, like uh, I'm a member of 12-step fellowships, uh, uh, anonymous ones, and the, fa- the founder of one of those anonymous fellowships, Bill Wilson, had, like he was very much inspired by William James and he had a correspondence with Carl Jung, who treated an earlier alcoholic friend of Bill Wilson's, who went on to inspire Bill to found these 12-step fellowships. You know, many people report, and I think it's commonly accepted, that Bill Wilson in sobriety took LSD uh, because he was a you know, I would argue too, a mystic and a spiritual sort of pioneer. For me, it's not kind of a, like, 
you know i get what the, i love those you know i love yogis and masters and maharajas and maharishis you know and sufi i love that whole route but i'm not got a kind of my perspective is not one of like sort of cheating or sportsmanship or fair play or protocols or whether it's correct to do it and neither is it that i feel like oh if i um were to take ayahuasca on monday on tuesday i'd be queuing up for a couple of rocks and two bags of smack it's more like my i've come to regard my psyche as quite fragile and like I'm sort of uncertain as to how I would deal with anything. In fact, in my stand-up show, I do a joke about, you know, where I describe a DMT experience in the kind of terms that we've been discussing. And so if I do that on a Wednesday, what am I going to do on Thursday? You know, I've got to carry on with my reality. I've got to incorporate that into my life. And I don't think that there is a catch-all solution to mental health and, you know, and psychic health. Um, Gabor Mate also has been a guest on the show and is, I would say, if not officially, certainly in practice, an expert on addiction. And, you know, he's very optimistic about these kind of processes should we say and and he believes that I would be all right doing it but you know I have sort of mentors that are directly connected to recovery and they say no Russell you cannot do this now I don't know if that's orthodoxy or convention so in a way it's something I've not ruled out because it excites me very much very much and because I am at heart not necessarily at heart I'm a I believe in, like, I'm a mystic and like, I believe in the power of comedy and I believe in the potential to heal and I really want to have access to these kind of experiences. And if I could, you know, but I know that there's a kind of a risk involved for me, a risk that I'm not entirely sure that I understand yet. But I've got a lot of friends that have done it, obviously, and it sort of it fascinates me. It fascinates me, but I know that I am there's a sort of there is like with all addicts there's something in me that is not in not within my control and that could yet kill me right and and I, I feel like I'm I'm sort of battling with the same uh the same sort of sort of issue with with myself and it's you know wondering you know do, do you take take the purest approach um to where you know um don't don't take the free lunch of psychedelics and do all the work and understand understand yourself you know like the answer lies within kind of thing like do you take that approach or do you say like hey here's a fantastic tool like let's use this tool to to speed up my progress here you know i mean i'm not gonna build a house without a hammer you know you're gonna use the tool that uh that's most effective and you know i think it's it's i'm definitely not discrediting the potential effectiveness of psychedelics for uh, for understanding yourself or improving mental health or anything like that. But just the idea that maybe if we're to step back on a, on a much more broad scale, it's sort of my idea that, uh, you know, psychedelics are, are beneficial, but that's really all they are is just tools. They're just tools to uh, allow us to experience uh, an, another form of reality and potentially form a new, uh, new belief system or form a, a different way of knowing that's inaccessible during normal waking consciousness. The pharmaceutical industry of beginning, it seems to investigate and invest in the possibility of psychedelic medicine. Do you think that there's more complexity here than in other areas of pharmacology? Do you think that they ever can really be sort of trusted? What are your attitudes around this kind of exploration? 
Yeah, yeah, this this modern psychedelic renaissance is sort of happening like the, the Wild West. It's, it's moving fast and there's, uh, I mean, last I checked, at least 50, 60 different private companies that are now funding clinical research, doing, doing uh, biosynthesis, doing extractions and doing a lot of psychedelic related work. And I think it's, uh, it's moving so fast that, uh, you know, first of all, a lot of these companies are not going to make it. They're not going to survive, uh, I think, but it might be moving fast without taking a lot of the necessary precautions. Mm. And with this, with this massive interest and, and hype in psychedelics to treat mental health, there's, um, there's just such, such a big interest to uh, sort of capitalize on it before we really know how to do it properly. So there's, a, there's sort of a bottleneck that's forming because so many people want to be a part of, be a part of, of psychedelics. I think so many people are, are suffering with, with mental, mental health conditions and they would, they would like to find treatment through psychedelics. And there's, there's a, there's a lot, there's a lot of demand, but there's not a lot of uh, preparation or knowledge or training or qualified uh, therapists or people to take care or oversee some of these clinical psychedelic experiences. So there's kind of a bottleneck that's formed. Um, and if, and if we aren't able to help people integrate the experiences as best as possible and prepare for the experiences as best as possible, then we're not going to be using these tools as, as effectively as we can. And, you know, that also brings some inherent risks and dangers because a psychedelic state is a very suggestible state. Uh, individuals under the influence of psychedelics can be uh, influenced very easily. Uh, they can, they can uh, become, you know, sort of gullible or suggestible, like I said. And when you couple in untrained therapists or really any therapists uh, in, in my mind, you have the potential to create sort of a, a, a power dynamic. So you have this very suggestible substance and you have uh, somebody who is, who is guiding that experience and um, you, can, you can influence somebody more than is helpful potentially. So I think there's, there's risks there. And, and if we don't ensure that we have properly trained clinicians and therapists and people overseeing how these, how these trials and how these things are running, then there's, there's a, a little bit of a risk for, you know, for harm. I agree with you, mate. What will be your focus for the, for the current, for the, for your research currently, what are you hoping to achieve? I've got a couple of projects that I'm hoping to wrap up in the next year before I graduate. And uh, one of them is uh, a, a deeper dive into the biosynthetic machinery of endogenous DMT. So I'm hoping to, uh, with, with our research, uh, with the team I'm working with, we're hoping to shed light on how DMT is actually biosynthesized and uh, all of the enzymes and the players that are responsible for that. And then potentially some of the things that might even upregulate or downregulate it. We're interested in, uh, you know, what causes DMT to be released or produced in the body. So hoping to uh, wrap that up in the next year. And then the other project I'm working on is looking at, like I mentioned before, the exogenous administration of DMT. Uh, and we're, we're doing this in rodents. We're giving it to, to rats and we're measuring EEG. So we're measuring the, uh, the brain activity. And then we're also collecting samples from the brain and measuring the change in neurochemistry that happens after administration of DMT. So we're, we're basically uh, characterizing on, uh, on a molecular level and 
an electrophysiological level what's happening in the brain when DMT is administered. And this neurochemistry that we're doing is, it's, it's, it's going to be very useful, I think, because it's something that you can't do in humans. You know, you can't put a probe in a human's brain and measure uh, the change in dopamine after you give serotonin. Um, but you can do that in rats, and we're measuring not only dopamine, but a number of different neurochemicals and, and hoping to uh, understand a little bit better some of the basic mechanisms that are at play during the administration of, of DMT. Nick, thanks, man. Thanks for coming on here. It's been a wonderful conversation. You've given me so much to think about, and you've uh, really illuminated a complex and beautiful subject so articulately. Thank you so much. Yeah, and thank you, Russell. Yeah, it's been it's been definitely a pleasure, and it was very exciting for me to come on and talk to you. So thanks for having me, and uh, good luck. Good luck with your work, too. Thank you for listening to Under the Skin with our wonderful guest, Nicholas Klinos. I was, hope you didn't take offence, Nicholas, about the way I kept um, undermining you because you're still a student. But some people, they just stay students their whole lives. Uh, someone explained this to me once. He said that then people in academia, they have one minute they're a student and they just stay there to do research. Then they become a lecturer. So they've been at school their whole lives. They like it. I didn't like it. I couldn't get out of there quick enough. Anyway, he says these people, they will have squabbles about like a line in poetry or whatever because, and it's really important to them. A friend of mine, a mentor of mine, actually told me all of that because I once offended a pretty famous and respected academic by doing what I thought was a pretty funny joke. Anyway, he was offended and he cut off our friendship forever. And I was a bit offended by it. And then I spoke to my mentor because I've offended this brilliant academic. He goes, you don't worry about them lot, mate. They stay at school their whole life. They don't know how to judge things correctly. And I was like, oh, thank you. That's made me feel a bit better. Anyway, that's just my private life. If uh, Let me know your thoughts on uh, Instagram. You can tag me at Russell Brand or tweet me at Rusty Rockets uh, using the hashtag under the skin. And if you enjoyed this conversation, why don't you listen to the episode where we spoke to Dr. Robin Carhart-Harris. He came up in the conversation. Uh, the episode's Will the Psychedelic Revolution Meaningfully Change the World? That was five years ago we were having that conversation. So we can say in the short term, no, it won't because it's five years later and it didn't. Or you can listen to Bob Roth, who's done a couple of episodes and does surprisingly well on this platform. People like him. I know Bob Roth well. He taught me to meditate, and that's not saying much for him. And you can also listen to our other podcast, Above the Noise, where we meditate together. I've told you the last one was uh, Emotions and Ambitions, pretty good. Remember to listen to the Awakening Side channel on YouTube, and remember to stay free, to love yourself. Thank you for listening to me, old Russ, on Under the Skin from Luminary. <laughs>